the time had finally come. British and American troops had liberated North Africa and pressed on into Italy. Soviet troops had turned the tide at Stalingrad and were slowly reclaiming their territory. The English Channel was virtually free of all Nazi submarines. And still, Hitler refused to surrender and hid behind his Atlantic Wall. Since the outbreak of war, Stalin was demanding an all-out effort to liberate France from German occupation. An invasion force greater than any in the history of the world was slowly amassing in southern Britain toward that end. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in episode three of our three-part series on World War II, we'll take a look at the famous Allied invasion of Europe, the negative impacts the war brought on Japanese-Americans at home, and the use of weapons of mass destruction in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I repeat, there is no confirmation. And here's another bulletin just in. KNB, the German agency, says uh, this is unconfirmed that the most important aerodromes in the area of the Normandy Peninsula of France have been wiped out. Now, I presume that means wiped out. The text of communique number one will be released to the press and radio of the United Nations in 10 seconds. A great game of espionage soon unfolded. If the Germans could discover when and where the attack would occur, they could simply concentrate all their efforts in one area, and the operation would be doomed to failure. Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning. The Allies staged phony exercises meant to confuse German intelligence. Two-dimensional dummy tanks were arranged to distract air surveillance. And there was considerable reason to believe that the attack would come at Calais, where the English Channel is narrowest. In actuality, Operation Overlord was aiming for the Normandy Peninsula on the morning of June 4th, 1944. Here is audio from the original news bulletin. Ladies and gentlemen, this is New York, NBC Newsroom again. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the zero hour of the Second Front. The men of General Dwight Eisenhower are leaving their landing barges, fighting their way up the beaches into the fortress of Nazi Europe. They are moving in... Foul weather postponed the attack for two days. Just after midnight, on June 6th, three airborne divisions parachuted behind enemy lines to disrupt paths of communications. As the German lookout sentries scanned the English Channel at daybreak, 
they saw the largest armada ever assembled in history heading toward the French shore. There were five points of attack. Gold and sword beaches were taken by the British, and Juneau Beach was captured by Canadian forces. The American task was to capture Utah and Omaha beaches. The troops at Omaha Beach met fierce resistance and suffered heavy casualties. Still, by nightfall, a beachhead had been established. Eventually, German troops retreated. The Atlantic Wall has been penetrated. There, after the first assault, the Allies clung precariously to a few beaches. But now they have a solid foothold on Fortress Europa. Men and material have poured onto the newly won beachheads with every favorable tide. After D-Day, the days of the German resistance were numbered. Paris was liberated in August 1944 as the Allies pushed slowly eastward. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union was moving into German territory as well. Hitler, at the Battle of the Bulge, launched a final unsuccessful counteroffensive in December 1944. Soon the Americans, British, and Free French found themselves racing the Soviets to Berlin. Along the way, they encountered the depths of Nazi horrors when they discovered concentration camps. American soldiers saw humans that looked more like skeletons, gas chambers, crematoriums, and countless victims. And although American government officials were aware of the atrocities against Jews, the sheer horror of the Holocaust of 12 million Jews and anyone else Hitler had deemed deviant was unknown to its fullest extent. When the Allies entered Berlin, they discovered that the mastermind of all of the destruction, Adolf Hitler, had already died by his own hand. With little left to sustain any sort of resistance, the Germans surrendered on May 8, 1945, hereafter known as VE Day, Victory in Europe. Filmed under fire, these are the first pictures of America's great naval victory in the Pacific. Army, Navy, and Marine planes cooperating with the fleet surprise a Jap invasion force sent to capture strategic Midway Island. But defeating Germany was only part of America's two-ocean mission. Pearl Harbor was only the beginning of Japanese assaults on American holdings in the Pacific. Two days after attacking Pearl Harbor, they seized Guam. Two weeks after that, they captured Wake Island. Before 1941 came to a close, the Philippines came under attack. Below, a blazing enemy cruiser fatally hit, maneuvering to get away. Led by General Douglas MacArthur, the Americans were confident they could hold the islands. A fierce Japanese strike proved otherwise. After retreating to strongholds at Bataan, the United States had no choice but to surrender the Philippines. 
before being summoned away by President Roosevelt, General MacArthur promised, I shall return. Before he returned, however, the Japanese inflicted the Bataan Death March, a brutal 85-mile forced journey of American and Filipino POWs. 16,000 souls perished along the way. In June 1942, Japan hoped to capture Midway Island, an American-held base about 1,000 miles west of Hawaii. Now, Midway could have been used as a staging point for future attacks on Pearl Harbor. The United States was still benefiting from being able to decipher Japanese radio messages. American naval commanders led by Chester Nimitz therefore knew the assault was coming. Back in port, Admiral Nimitz, who directed the action, bestows medals for deeds of valor. They fought the strangest naval battle in history, a battle in which the ships were hundreds of miles apart. Airplane combat was the order of the day at the Battle of Midway. After the smoke had cleared, four Japanese aircraft carriers had been destroyed. The plot to capture Midway collapsed and Japan lost much of its offensive capability in the process. After the Battle of Midway, the Japanese were forced to fall back and defend their holdings. Today, American plants speed production of more and more giant bombers. It was called island hopping, and it was a strategy used by the United States Command. Rather than taking every Japanese fortification, the United States selectively chose a path that would move U.S. naval forces closer and closer to the Japanese mainland. In October 1944, MacArthur returned to the Philippines as promised, accompanied by a hundred ships, and soon the islands were liberated. MacArthur returns to the Philippines with a great ocean-going armada. This is the comeback he predicted. Navy the capture of Iwo Jima and Okinawa cleared the way for an all-out assault on Japan. And despite heavy losses, the Japanese refused to surrender. They intensified the attacks on American ships with suicide missions called kamikazes. These pilots flew their own aircraft into sudden death. Over the White House at Washington, the flag flies at half-staff as a grief-stricken nation mourns the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President of the United States. Inside in the historic cabinet room, Vice President Harry S. Truman takes the oath of office as 32nd President administered by Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone. Back in the United States, there was also another sudden death. In April 1945, President Roosevelt died of a brain hemorrhage. Harry Truman was unexpectedly left to decide the outcome of the war in the Pacific. The residents of the new community set about developing a way of life as nearly normal as possible. They held church services, Protestant, Catholic and Buddhist. They issued their own newspaper, organized nursery schools, and some made camouflage nets for the United States Army. Over 127,000 United States citizens were imprisoned during World War II. Their crime? Being of Japanese ancestry. Despite the lack of any concrete evidence, Japanese Americans were suspected of remaining loyal to their ancestral land, Anti-Japanese paranoia increased because of a large Japanese presence on the West Coast, particularly in California. In the event of a Japanese invasion of the American mainland, 
Japanese Americans were feared as a security risk. And succumbing to bad advice and popular opinion, President Roosevelt signed an executive order in February of 1942 ordering the relocation of all Americans of Japanese ancestry into concentration camps in the interior deserts of the United States. Evacuation orders were posted in Japanese-American communities, giving instructions on how to comply with this executive order. Many families sold their homes, their stores, and most of their assets. They could not be certain that their homes and livelihoods would still be there upon their return. They made a rough beginning of self-government. For while the army would guard the outer limits of each area, community life and security within were largely up to the Japanese themselves. Fred Korematsu decided to test the government's relocation action in the courts. He found little sympathy there. In Korematsu versus the United States, the Supreme Court justified the executive order as a wartime necessity. When the order was repealed, many found they could not return to their hometowns. Hostility against Japanese Americans remained high across the West Coast into the post-war years as many villages displayed signs demanding that evacuees never returned. As a result, the interns scattered across the country. And their grandparents, who are aliens, immediately wanted to go to work. At Manzanar, they built a lath house and began rooting guayuli cuttings. The plants, when mature, will add to our rubber supply. In 1988, Congress attempted to apologize for the action by awarding each surviving intern $20,000. While the American concentration camps never reached the levels of Nazi death camps as far as atrocities are concerned, they remain a dark mark on the nation's record of respecting civil liberties and cultural differences. Early in 1939, the world scientific community discovered that German physicists had learned the secrets of splitting a uranium atom. Fear soon spread over the possibility of Nazi scientists utilizing that energy to produce a bomb capable of unspeakable destruction. Scientist Albert Einstein, who fled Nazi persecution, and Enrico Fermi, who escaped fascist Italy, were now living in the United States. They agreed that the president must be informed of the dangers of atomic technology in the hands of the Axis powers. Fermi traveled to Washington in March to express his concerns to government officials, but few shared his uneasiness. Einstein penned a letter to President Roosevelt urging the development of an atomic research program later that year. Roosevelt saw neither the necessity nor the utility for such a project, but agreed to proceed slowly. And in late 1941, the American effort to design and build an atomic bomb received its code name, the Manhattan Project. The project advanced at breakneck speed. Nuclear facilities were built at Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Hanford, Washington, but the main assembly plant was built at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Robert Oppenheimer was put in charge of putting the pieces together at Los Alamos, and after the final bill was tallied, nearly $2 billion had been spent on research and developments of the atomic bomb. The Manhattan Project ever 
top secret, employed over 120,000 Americans. The first test of the atomic bomb in the New Mexico desert. On July 16, 1945, at Trinity Site near Alamogordo, New Mexico, scientists of the Manhattan Project readied themselves to watch the detonation of the world's first atomic bomb. A blinding flash, visible for 200 miles, lit up the morning sky. A mushroom cloud reached 40,000 feet, blowing out windows of civilian homes up to 100 miles away. When the cloud returned to Earth, it created a half-mile-wide crater, metamorphosing sand into glass. When Harry Truman learned of the success of the Manhattan Project, he knew he was faced with the decision of unprecedented gravity. The capacity to end the war with Japan was in his hands, but it would involve unleashing the most terrible weapon ever known. American soldiers and civilians were weary from four years of war, yet the Japanese military was refusing to give up their fight. American forces occupied Okinawa and Iwo Jima and were intensely firebombing Japanese cities. But Japan had an army of two million strong stationed in the home islands guarding against invasion. For Truman, the choice whether or not to use the atomic bomb was what he will recount the most difficult decision of his life. First, an Allied demand for an immediate unconditional surrender was made to the leadership in Japan. And although the demand stated that the refusal would result in total destruction, no mention of any new weapons of mass destruction were made. But the Japanese military command rejected that request for unconditional surrender but there were indications that a conditional surrender was possible. Regardless, on August 6, 1945, a plane called the Enola Gay dropped an atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. Instantly, 70,000 Japanese citizens were vaporized. In the months and years that followed, an additional 100,000 perished from burns and radiation sickness. Two days later, the Soviet Union declared war on Japan. On August 9th, a second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, where 80,000 people immediately perished. On August 14th, a few days later, the Japanese surrendered. The day of days for America and her allies. Crowds before the White House await the announcement from the president that the Japs have surrendered unconditionally. Critics have charged that Truman's decision was a barbaric act that brought negative long-term consequences to the United States. A new age of nuclear terror led to a dangerous arms race. Some military analysts insist that Japan was on its knees and the bombings were simply unnecessary. The American government was accused of racism on the grounds that such a device would never have been used against white civilians in Europe. Other critics argued that American diplomats had ulterior motives. For instance, the Soviet Union had entered the war against Japan, and the atomic bomb could be read as a strong message 
for the Soviets to tread lightly. In this respect, Hiroshima and Nagasaki may have been the first shots of the Cold War, as well as the final shots of World War II. Regardless, the United States remains the only nation in the world to have used a nuclear weapon on another nation. An impromptu, spontaneous celebration, but it was in that city's Chinatown where Victory Day was the most joyous. When Japan surrendered to the Allies at the end of the long summer of 1945, Americans were ecstatic. Ticker tape parades were staged in nearly every town to welcome America's returning heroes. Unquestionably, the United States' entry into World War II made the difference for the Allied cause. The American Army and Navy were now the most powerful in the world. Even those who did not fight could feel proud of the work Americans did in the factories to build the war machine. The generation that lived through World War II will never forget the sacrifices of wartime. From rationing food, to collecting scrap, to buying bonds, to even fighting in battle, the efforts to defeat the Axis were a product of the collective American will. News anchor Tom Brokaw recently labeled the Americans who came of age in World War II the greatest generation. And that concludes our three-part series of World War II on Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and next time, unfortunately, the euphoria could not last long. Although the Soviet Union and the United States were allied in their struggle against Hitler's Germany, Americans' distrust of Joseph Stalin and his communist government began to move us towards a Cold War. More Soviet citizens were killed in World War II than any other, and Stalin was determined to receive compensation for damages and guarantees that such a slaughter could never plague the Soviet people again. For its part, the United States was unwilling to sit idle while other forms of totalitarianism spread westward from Moscow and eastward toward Vietnam. The beginnings of the Cold War and America in the 1950s under President Eisenhower. Next time on Print the Legend. We'll see you then. This is the jump off. This is Operation Homecoming, the last official mission of the All-American 82nd Airborne Division. Their objective, the four and a half mile parade route through New York City the largest big-time victory parade since Pershing AEF down Fifth Avenue in 1919. Reinforced with veterans from three other airborne infantry units, the 13,000 crack glider and paratroops of the 82nd swing to the proud cadence of the foot soldiers. Their first salute they throw to their comrades who must stand on the curb, whose red blood and purple heart pulse to a parade they cannot march in.